Father, it is a, um, it's a deep joy as we continue to worship, as we seek to open our hearts in the midst of this crazy season um, to the most amazing and crazy thing of all, and that's that you came for us. And so I pray for my brother Mike, I pray for each one of us that our hearts would be inflamed with the beauty of the gospel, with the magnitude of your deep love for us in Christ Jesus, whom you sent for us to save us. And uh, we're hopeless without you. So uh, feed us this morning, encourage our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Yes, have a seat. So if you were uh, here last week, you know that during the season of Advent, we're going to be stepping away from the Catechism series and spending uh, this season pouring our hearts into preparing us for Christmas. We want to be setting this time aside uh, to be looking at the world that was when God chose to step into it. And Art uh, started this last week by pointing us to Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. We can point that up there real quick. It said, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We're titling this series, The Divine Choreography of Christmas, and we are basically looking into the world that was when Jesus stepped in. And I've always loved studying it because it's really fascinating, the intricacies that came together. Just three centuries before, Alexander the Great conquers the known world, and his love of Hellenism brings, he unifies the world with a Greek language and culture. And then shortly thereafter, the Romans come along, and they find ways to connect the world through the roads, and they bring peace for a short period of time. And then at the same time, the Jews are being brought back into their promised land, in the epicenter of the known world at this time. And it was into this world that God brought his son. And I love that phrase, the fullness of time. The world had been longing for, yearning for, anxious for the coming of the Christ. And it was time. And so this morning, we're going to be focusing on that second clause in there, the one after Art talked about. Uh, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman. And in order to do that, we're going to be going to Luke 1. And so I would ask you guys, if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke 1. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to get one into your hands. Uh, please, actually, put your hand up. We've got uh, our elders will be coming and handing them out to you. Um, is it? Okay. Uh, we have, um, we desire for you to have God's word in your hand, and not just today, throughout the week. So if you, if you don't have one, take it. It's yours. We want you to have God's word in your hand. We want you to be able to see, um, spend time with him throughout the week, and not just be here with him on Sunday morning. So we're going to be in Luke 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a woman whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we enter into the story and discern the significance of the phrase in Galatians 4, born of woman, we're going to be talking about three things. We're going to be talking about why Jesus was born of a woman, about who this woman was, and about what this means for us. Why Jesus was born of a woman, who this woman was, and what this means for us. So that first thing, why Jesus was born of a woman. Being born of a woman, as you all know, is a part of being human. Every human has to go through it. Every single one of them. And so there is something about this idea that Jesus was born of a woman that is tied directly to his humanity. Because he had to experience every part of humanity, even things like that. Now, this belief actually has been, over the years in the early church, disputed, and even still today, some people deny it. But the reality is that uh, we as a church believe, and if you had a chance to read our confession of faith that we distributed a few weeks ago, that Jesus had two natures. And actually, I'm going to ask us to all read this together. We're going to put this on the screen. This is from our confession of faith, and if you haven't read it, we really want to encourage you to do so. Let's read this together. We believe that, moved by love and in obedience to his Father... The eternal son became human. The word became flesh, fully God and fully human being, one person in two natures. Now, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that this morning. Uh, When we get back into the catechism series in the spring, question number 22 of the catechisms is, why must the Redeemer be truly human? But we can't ignore it because it really matters today. So we're going to talk about it briefly and, and then spend more time on it when we get it back in the spring. Because it is essential for us to understand that Jesus was indeed born of a woman. The Apostle John writes this in 1 John 1, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The early church, there were a number of false teachings that were coming out at this time, and a number of people really tried to reconcile the idea of how can an eternal God become man? How can God become a human? And they did a lot of work to try to work this out uh, in their minds, and it's really unfortunate because they were willing to sacrifice some really significant things. One of the false teachings was that this didn't happen. God couldn't become a human. It would have tainted his divinity, and so therefore we just have to ignore it. Another group came along and said, well, we believe he came, but I actually think it makes more sense that his soul was the Holy Spirit, because that way he could be a human with a physical body, but his inner workings, that's the total God thing. Another group even just said, well, I don't believe he physically was here. He was just a ghost, a spirit, an apparition. 
But every single one of these claims seems to deny something, especially that we just read in 1 John 1, that Jesus was actually here. He was seen and heard and touched, and he was fully human. These false teachers were trying to convince themselves of something because in reality, it is a little confusing, but they were willing to go to dangerous places and sacrifice something so detrimental to our faith that Jesus had to be human. If Jesus did not become human, he could not be the substitute for us. If he was not fully human, then he could not have died for humans. There was an early church father. I, I got to read about him this week. Fascinating guy who I'd never heard of before. His name was Gregory of Nazianzus. And Gregory of Nazianzus made some incredible advancements theologically, both in his day, that we still hold today. And we are bound to because of the insignificance uh, and the beauty of it. And he attributed it with, he's attributed with this quote, um, which is relating to the need for Christ to assume or to take on humanity. He says, what was not assumed could not be saved. If Jesus did not assume humanity, then there's no way that his death could have sufficed. There's no way that he could have atoned for our sins. There's no way that he, his life could have been fully human and therefore taken on what he needed to take on to be the right sacrifice. That's the reason why sacrifice in the Old Testament didn't work long-term. They weren't perfect fits. They need a full, complete, perfect substitute. Therefore, Jesus had to be human. I desperately want us to understand the significance of this belief. The early church fought for this. And so we see that Jesus had to become human. But what does this mean for us? Why does this matter? Why does the fact that Jesus became a human relate to where you are this morning in your chair? First thing I think it tells us is it tells us that he went through the process of becoming a human. Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this, this passage has, scholars have spent their lives on this. We're not going to, we don't have that much time. We're going to spend a, a quick minute. But uh, they have, there's a lot to unpack here. But what I do want to kind of look at is that by emptying himself, Jesus was taking on the limitations of humanity. He was laying aside certain rights of his divinity. He was veiling his glory. And he was basically take, adding on the, uh, the attributes of a human. Because he became completely human. And that baffles me. Because if I begin to think of it, then there's some implications that come out of this. And J.I. Packer points out one of these, which I think is really significant. He says, God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child, the babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. We have some babies in here, actually right now. We've been around babies. Picture this. God the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything cannot hold up his head. He spoke the universe into existence and he has to be taught how to say mommy and daddy. He separated the waters to create land and sea 
He spends the first couple of years of his life going to the bathroom in a diaper. This boggles my mind when I begin to think of the God of the universe becoming a baby. He became a human. I don't think I am in awe of the incarnation as much as I should be. It's become very diluted, very commonplace, when it's in reality the most spectacular thing that you can ponder. In my study, I came across this uh, description of Moses, which I thought was really interesting. If you think about a guy who had a lot of experience encountering God, um, this is a guy whose who's life, at least up until the New Testament, <laughs> got more exposure to God than I think anyone else. And uh, imagine what the Christmas message might have sounded like to him. Let's go back in our minds to Exodus 19 and 20. Uh, this is God is preparing his people to give them the law. They are at the, mount, the, the foot of Mount Sinai. They're getting ready. Moses is going to go up. He has told them, revere this. They are out, scared out of their minds because fire and smoke comes down on the mountain and the earth literally shakes and the people are so afraid. It says they trembled with fear. They're like, I want to have nothing to do with this. I want to stay away from this God. And this is like 12 chapters before they decide to melt all their gold and worship a golden calf. Like they don't have as much necessarily to be afraid of at this point. They're scared out of their minds. And Moses... <laughs> for some reason, says, God, I want to see your face. And I love that. He's like, I want to see your face, God. And God says, I, I'm sorry. I can't do that. It will kill you. But what I will do is I will cover you. I will pass by you. I will let you see the backside of my glory. And that's what he does. And what happens? When Moses descends from the mountain, his face is so radiant that people cannot look at him because it is so bright. What is so bright you can't look at it in this world? The sun, right? Not today, but other days. The sun. You can't stare at it for a second without it hurting you or potentially doing damage. His face was so bright that he had to wear a veil. And all he did was see the backside of the glory of God. Imagine what he's hearing when he, when he hears this message. Wait a second. He's coming. He's coming here. He's going to walk among us. We're going to get to see him and touch him. We're going to get to see the God that I couldn't see his face. This is amazing. And he did. He came near. He came near to be with us. And because he came near, because he lived his life fully as a human, he now knows what it's like. And this is the second part of that that I think is really significant. We think that Jesus became a human and he experienced the, the normal things that we humans experience, like uh, he needed food, he needed water, he needed oxygen, he needed sleep, he needed uh, a shelter, he needed to be loved. Like we have all these necessities of life that we carry with humanity. That wasn't just it. Jesus didn't just experience the physicalness of being a human. He experienced all of the heart-wrenching, emotionally devastating things in his life that we experience too. And not just the like becoming a child and then an adolescent and then an adult, like that's really hard. Admittedly, really it is. But like everything that we experience in our lives, he had that happen to him too. What have you had to go through in your life? Like you can rest in this. He can empathize with you. What tragedy have you experienced? He can truly empathize with you. What, how are you suffering? How, how is life difficult? What is going on in your world that is really just like weighing you down? Jesus can empathize with you. He experienced loss. 
He experienced betrayal. He experienced being lied to, being mocked and ridiculed and despised. He was forsaken and not just by other people, but by his father. He became human for us. And now because of that, he now has the infinite power to comfort us, to meet us in our pain. Jesus in coming shows us that God is unlike any other God of any other faith because in his coming, he looks at these as like, have you been hurt? Are you lonely? Are you destitute? Are you, have you faced death? So have I. He did all of this because he loves us. Jesus became human. He stepped out of heaven and he was born of a woman. So our second point, who was this woman? Why this woman? What was so special about Mary? Could, could God have done it some other way? Could, could there have been a, a, a workaround of sorts? Well, I hope that you know that based on all the things we said about his need to be human, there was no other way. He could not act outside of his character, his justice, his holiness, his love. That had to happen. But why Mary? It's a great question because I think it's one that we must answer for ourselves in order to get to the, uh, the root of this text. In, in, uh, in asking who Mary was, the answer simply is a nobody. She wasn't anyone significant. She wasn't anyone special. She was poor, from a poor village in a poor area. Mary's from Nazareth, and I don't know if you remember this, but in John 1, Nathaniel, who's about to become one of Jesus' disciples, says, wait a second, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? It's this really lowly, not highly viewed place. And on top of her being poor, she's a girl, and she's a, she's a child. She's a child in a culture where children were not necessarily acknowledged in that way, and she's a woman, which we've talked about before, in a culture where women were not really necessarily acknowledged that way. And beyond all that, she was a Jew, which in that day and age meant very little. You were not up on any social ladder. She probably actually anticipated her life being fairly simple. I will live my life with my family. Some man will point pick me. We will get married. I will have children. I will raise them, and they will go off and do the same, just like my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents and the ancestors before them. That's the cycle she was anticipating. But isn't it beautiful? Isn't that how God works, like, all the time? Isn't that how he often steps in and says, I know that the world says this doesn't really matter or this isn't really significant. But it does to me. He looks, he picks somebody, he says, special, favored, mine. Jacob was the younger, weaker, more conniving of the two. God chose him. Moses was constantly trying to give God reasons why he shouldn't be chosen. God chose him. We finished studying the book of Judges as a youth group this semester Man, talk about a book filled of unlikely people who have no reason, no business being picked by God to being used. And then finally, we have King David, the youngest of his brothers, the least kingly in his family. And God looks at each of them and says, I choose you. You are going to do great things for me. And so let's look back at Mary. We look back at the text and you might see a couple things that stand out to you. And honestly, they seem pretty normal. She doesn't look that ex extravagant, which is, which is good. It's true. But let's, let's kind of dive into a couple of these first things. Uh, the first thing we might see is that it says she's a virgin betrothed to Joseph. Now, 
The word virgin might not confuse you because it means the exact same thing today that it meant back then. So that hopefully is simple for you. But betrothal might be a little more interesting. Uh, marriage typically in that day worked in a way, especially in the poorer villages, where uh, a man, usually in his early to mid-20s, would have uh, secured a provision for a family and gotten to a point where he's able to bring on a woman, a wife. And what he does is he goes to his parents and he says, Mom, Dad, I've been scouring the village, which, by the way, Nazareth was not very big, so there weren't too many of them. But he found one he liked. And he said, her. And so <clears throat> uh, Joseph's mom and dad were like, okay, let's figure this out. And they go connect with the woman. And by the way, small village, everyone probably knew each other. They probably knew who it was, which means Mary probably knew who Joseph was, so it wasn't a surprise. And this is the interesting part. There's a really good chance that Mary wasn't against this, that she had also seen Joseph and wanted Joseph we often think that love and romance was removed, and it really wasn't, not nearly as much as we think it was. But so the parents come together. They start discussing all the details of the marriage, the dowry, which would have been very small, especially in this culture, um, the expectations for the relationship, how this would affect the families. They would have done all the work to kind of come out with all that it required. And then, by the way, Mary and Joseph are there for this conversation. As the agreements are made, the two are betrothed. A ceremony is performed, and the man and the woman are brought together, and there is a legally binding relationship. And this is what it says. The man will then go away, prepare a place, and he will come back and get her. Which, by the way, when I hear that, I cannot help but think of what Jesus said to his disciples on the last night of his life in the upper room in John 14, where he said, I must go. I must go away and prepare a place. My father's house has many rooms. I'm going to go and get ready, and I'm going to come back and get you. Because Jesus is the bridegroom of the church, his bride. What a beautiful picture of the relationship that we are betrothed to Jesus. And so this is how this relationship was established. And until the bridegroom comes back to get the bride, they are not married. They are betrothed, which means they have not consummated a marriage, which means she is a virgin. And because of the culture, this just wouldn't have happened. But what's fascinating about betrothal, and maybe if you know the story, you're familiar with this, but um, betrothal was as serious a commitment and covenant as marriage, such that if it wanted to be ended, it was a divorce. It was the exact same thing in God's eyes. That promise, that commitment was a divorce from each other. And so this is where Mary is. She's in this betrothal period. She's been met with the, Joseph and his family. She knows what's coming. She's anticipating his return. He hasn't come back yet, and Gabriel shows up. This is where we are in verse 28 of chapter 1. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. First thing we see, it says she was favored, which we've talked about. It's beautiful, right? There's no reason. God chose her. First Samuel 16 tells us that God, when he's talking, God's talking to Samuel about David. He's like, no, people look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. And I believe there was something beautiful about Mary's heart that he sees. And even though she seems insignificant, he chooses her. He favors her. A second note, though, I want to point out, which I, I love this, uh, is the word or phrase, uh, tried to discern. Um, some of your versions might actually say wondered. And I think they're both lacking a little bit because the word actually means to make an audit of. 
It's an accounting word. It's a math word. And if you know me, you know I'm getting really excited because I'm a math guy. I love math. I have seriously loved for years like doing math problems for fun. That's actually who I am. And let me invite you in a little bit more on the crazy. I'm looking at the calendar anxious for January when the IRS is going to release the 2016 1040s so I can start working on my taxes because I look forward to getting to do it. I do it a number of times. Ask my wife. It's true. And I get so excited, not just because the results, but because I love math. And this is what Mary is doing. She's sitting there. She is observing. She's bothered by this. She's troubled, but she's doing calculations. She's, wait a second. Hold on. He's, why, he's here. How, how could this be? Okay, if he's, could this be a good thing? Okay, could this be a bad thing? How, how, how is this? Wait a second. This doesn't add up. Hold on. Wait a second. I'm a virgin. I don't know how, how you think this is supposed to work. Okay, wait. Is this like a hallucination? Is he actually talking? He's talking to me. Okay, what are the implications of all this? She is adding up. She is weighing it. She is pondering. She is calculating in her mind the reality of what this means which means she was being intensely rational. We have a problem as a culture, and I'm not sure if it's just our problem, maybe it's just me, but I'm sure it's more of us, uh, is that we look back on people before us and we assume they were not critical people. We assume they were not thinkers. We look at the Enlightenment and we're like, that took us up a few notches, we keep growing ever since then, and really, just look back at the generation before us. No offense. <laughs> I'm young, I shouldn't have said that. People might think that these people, like biblical characters, had blind faith and just accept things. But the reality is that is just not true. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. People from this time were not lower on the IQ chart than us. They did not accept things blindly. They did not just assume that superstition was real and believe all claims. Our culture has trained us to uh, doubt the supernatural, but the thing is, like, they weren't expecting this. This wasn't how it was supposed to be. They were, yeah, the prophecies were there, but they kept trying to be like, well, it probably means this or it might mean this, and they were not thinking this was how it was going to go down. So she's thinking. She's rational. She's asking the questions. She is doing what we should do. Examine it. Use reason. Ask questions the same way that we have to if we're going to have any faith. You cannot just blindly accept things. You've got to fight for it. But I want to note something about this doubt, because if you have read the previous passage in Luke 1, you might have heard some things that are a little similar to this story. It's about a man named Zechariah. Now, Zechariah's wife was Elizabeth, who we read about in verse 36, and Elizabeth was a relative of Mary. Now, Zechariah was a priest, and he was by lot told to go into the uh, temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when he's in there, an angel the same angel, Gabriel, shows up and tells him some beautiful, amazing promise. And what he chooses to do is, uh, I, how is that going to happen? Like, we're both really old. And the angel looks at him and says, you're not going to be able to talk until the day this comes true. Which, by the way, if you're reading that like I was, you're like, wait a second. This guy has an encounter with an angel, which is scary enough, and then is told this promise, asks a question, like a clarifying question, and then he is, which is a good thing, and then he's struck mute. This girl, and by the way, I don't believe it's a gender thing, this girl asks a question, and she's given an explanation, and then proof of why this will happen. What is the difference? What is the pattern? 
Well, as a youth pastor, I've had the chance to talk to teenagers about things like doubt for years, almost a decade. And they have expressed real questions, real concerns, real uncertainty in the realm of their faith, things that I am grateful that they are fighting through. Some of them appear to come to me and say things like, um, help me understand this. this. This isn't lining up. It's almost like the, uh, the father, I do believe, but help my unbelief. They have what I like to call open-minded doubt. There is realm for possibility. They are not shutting out the chance that this is a real thing. They want to believe. But there are others who have come to me, and by the way, this does not just apply to teenagers. There are other people who have come to me and said things like, how can you believe that? And they just start poking holes in your faith. They start trying to find ways to make sure you haven't thought through this. You haven't wrestled with that. You haven't considered the reality of, you don't know. And they try to come with, this, with their minds already made up. They have what I like to call closed-minded doubt. The difference lies in the posture of the heart. You see, Zachariah hears the promise, and he immediately comes up with the reasons why, like, I don't think this is possible. He doesn't have an openness or, or humility to recognize that it's true. But Mary seems to come with uh, the curiosity, with an open-minded doubt. This is the type of woman that Mary is. This is the type of woman that God chose. She had her hands out. She's like, okay, I don't understand this. Help. Let's keep reading. And the angel said to her in the verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So Mary hears this, asks a question, a valid question, hoping for some clarity, and she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Literally, since I do not know a man. So we've already talked about the fact that she was a virgin. This was a stumbling block for her. And it's a stumbling block for people all throughout the generations. They don't get how this is possible, which is interesting because culturally in the world, if you look back at a lot of uh, ancient writings, there are um, virgin or immaculate um, uh, conception type, miraculous conception type stories in many, many uh, cultures. This wasn't an uncommon thing. And yet even in Judaism, God on a number of occasions stepped in and did some miraculous things with people who couldn't have children. Sarah was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. And then Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was, uh, was uh, 20 years of barrenness before God gave her Jacob and Esau. And then Rebecca, I'm um, sorry, then Rachel's second wife, uh, second, yeah, Jacob's second wife, Rachel, um, kept watching her sister, Leah, have children again and again and again and again until God stepped in. And then Hannah was begging God for a child, and God gave her Samuel who he used in some phenomenal ways in the Old Testament. And then we come to here, Elizabeth, in her old age, Mary's cousin. We see God repeatedly stepping into the process. He, he time and time again, for his purposes, utilizes the system, the way things work, to pre produce babies and people who couldn't have babies. But this time's different. This time's totally different because God doesn't use the normal order of things this time. He does something fascinating and beyond our wildest dreams. Luke 1, verse 35, it says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. 
Then he gives her proof. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. See, he can do this. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Mary had never known a man, and she was to become with child. And God was going to be the father. And this is where I think we begin to see a little bit of Mary's character. Remember, she's a rational person. She's been thinking through this, and by this point, she's probably had some thoughts. She could have responded like this. Gabriel. Gabriel, right? Gabriel. I, uh, I don't think you are aware of what you're asking. Uh, first of all, this is impossible. Yeah, nothing is impossible with God, but like, hold on. There's physically no way. And even if there were, why me? Like, seriously, why me? Do you have any idea what this is going to do to me? Do you have any idea how this is going to cost me? What is this? First of all, people are smart. They're going to do the math, and they're going to figure out that when I have a baby, it's going to look weird. This is too close to Joseph and Mary's wedding. Like, what happened? They're going to know that either I was um, unfaithful to him or that we were doing something we shouldn't have been doing. They're going to judge us. They're going to call us sinners. And beyond that, what are they going to say about my son? He'll be an illegitimate child. Gosh, what would Joseph say? Please, don't make me do this. He'll leave me. But this is what she says. Verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. About this response, Matthew Henry says this. He says, she objects not to the danger of spoiling her marriage and blemishing her reputation, but leaves the issue with God and submits entirely to his will. She was 15, guys, on the low end of the social ladder. And she, this is presented with her as a, hey, get ready to go lower. And she says, okay, I don't know what it's going to bring with it, but I'm ready. And she did so willingly, even to the point of going through the agony of watching her son tortured and killed at a young age. She takes all this into account, knowing somewhat what it's going to cost her, her family. And she says, I don't get it, but I trust you. I'm yours. And this brings us to our third point. What does this mean for us? See, we've already talked about how Mary is not special. There's nothing significant about her. But twice, Gabriel looks at her and says, favored. He's saying, God loves you. Don't be afraid. I cannot promise it's going to be easy. But he's going to do amazing things for me, through you. And if, Mary can use, sorry, if God can use Mary, a poor, insignificant girl from Nazareth, who can't he use? He can use anybody. It's not to say that he only uses the lowly. He uses everybody. And he wants to. And so my prayer for me and for us as we come to this is that we would have the exact same response that she did. I am a servant of the Lord. I am curious who here today has felt God tugging on something in your heart. Maybe in the past week, or month, or year, there is something that's been going on in your world where God is preparing you for something really specific, like with Esther, for such a time as this. It's the holidays, right? Some of us are getting together with family, and for some of us, it's not very easy. Perhaps you are in, the, in a family where there's people who are at odds with one another, 
And God has been asking you to risk your relational equity, to stand in the gap, to fight for reconciliation and restoration. What will you say? I am a servant of the Lord. Maybe over the past few weeks or months, God has been sort of striking you between hearing the things that are going on around us that maybe I'm supposed to pour myself out in some really unique way for some outreach that I have never considered before. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm supposed to get involved with refugees who desperately need people to welcome them and love them. Maybe he's wanting me to get involved in adoption or foster care because there's children in the world who don't have parents. Or maybe he wants me to get involved in human trafficking, not just overseas, here in our communities. What is he asking of you? And what will you say? I pray you say, I am a servant of the Lord. Maybe there's someone in your world who right now is making decisions that is devastating the world around them and hurting everyone in their path. Maybe there's somebody in your world who is pursuing divorce and right now you can't imagine why they are doing this or what's going on and God is tugging at your heart right now saying, you, I have you in this for a reason. I want you to step into this. You're the right person for the job and you don't want to enter into that pain and say the hard truth. He's saying, it's for you. What will you say? I am a servant of the Lord. During this season, we've been talking about this. Maybe he's asking you to give extravagantly, financially, possibly, but maybe in other ways. Maybe he's, you're hearing the things that are going on this morning and, and uh, this week, and you're like, maybe I'm supposed to go somewhere. Maybe I'm supposed to pour myself into this ministry, this outreach of all the things that are going on in the world that need justice. What will you say? I am a servant of the Lord. Maybe you're in the middle of some ongoing chronic suffering. Maybe you've just been in pain for years, and you are sick and tired of it. In the last couple of years, you've been bitter and angry and confused and demanding an explanation. And God is saying, trust me. Believe my promises. And rather than look for justification, look to him and say, let it be to me according to your word. I am a servant of the Lord. I don't know where you are. I don't know what's striking you right now. But I know that God always, always works in us to do things for other people. And he often works in ways that make sense with how he's made us. Not all the time. Sometimes he wants us to step outside of ourselves. But what are your passions? What are your gifts, your skills, your talents, your personal experiences? What has he done in you? How has he created you and brought you to this place? Not just like made you as a baby, but like made you who you are today. Who are you? God always calls us out in order to send us out. Even 1 Corinthians 12, 7, talking about the church. The, the role of the, of the spiritual gifts in the church is the each given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's always been about other people. He wants to use us, loved ones. He wants to use us to love the people around us. And there is no one that God cannot use. He has decided that he will advance his redemptive purposes in the kingdom in the world through us. He loves using broken, doubting, insignificant humans for great things. What is he calling you to today? I pray your response would be, I am the servant of the Lord. And when I hear that response, I don't know about you, but I'm immediately taken somewhere in scriptures where I think of another man who did not want to do what he was being told he had to do. And he said, Father, please, no. But not my will but yours be done. Because Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, decided that he would be the servant of the Lord for you. 
he would come and he would offer his body and his blood so that we could experience that. And this is the beautiful part, not so that we have an example that we can now look at and be like, oh, this is how it's done, but so know that he can now do that through us because the promise isn't, the gospel is not that we get to now do things for him, it's that he already did the work and he's inviting us to let him do it in us. He took on humanity. He lived his life as an outcast. And then drinking the cup of God's wrath and separation, he became the servant of the Lord for you. And so as we come to the table, remember that. He took on flesh and blood and died so that we could respond in the same way as he lives in through us. Let me pray. Jesus, as we begin to think of who you are, of what you did, the lengths you went to come, the life you experienced to get us, to empathize with us, and now, having been the servant of the Lord for us, Lord, help us to be that submissive in the response. God, we need so desperately for you to do the work in our hearts, to draw us to these things, to stir in us and invite others into our world that we would be able to respond in that way. Lord, help us to do that. Please, Father, we beg of you that you would do that in us. Be stirring in the hearts of these people today and me, Father, that I would be answering the call and responding to you in this way. I am the servant of the Lord. So, Father, we ask that you would help us to ingest this text, this take this into our bodies, may this uh, move us, transform our hearts to know you more, to love you more, and to love others. We lift all this in Jesus' holy, redemptive, fully God and fully man name, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have looked at Jesus and decided that he was fully God and fully man for you, that he came that he died, this meal is for you. This meal is for believers. But if you haven't done that, it's okay. I encourage you, invite you, please stay in your seat. Reflect, think about this. Ponder what this means for you. I would encourage you, if, if you haven't done this, today could be the day. You'd see what he's done for you, what he's offered. May you want to come and take that. But if this is your table, if this is your food, if this is a place where you've come to, that Jesus is the Son of God, he became a human, born of a woman for us. This table's for you. I invite you to come to the table with us.